This podcast is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, check out our website at communitycovenant.net. Brother in Christ, Kenan Ostergut, who also happens to be my brother-in-law through marriage, uh, but great guy. And each week we've been telling an outflow story. It's simply a story of how Christ used us maybe to help somebody take a step closer to Jesus Christ or how somebody, uh, the Holy Spirit used somebody else to help us take a step closer. And uh, Kenan has a story he's going to share with us this morning. Kenan? Thanks, Tyler. I usually go to the 5 o'clock service. I see a few familiar faces out there. Uh, several years ago, I used to work at a downtown engineering firm. A very high-stress, high-pressure environment, multi-million dollar projects, and I was the equivalent of a high-tech gopher boy. So when the big, important engineers would wander into my area, I knew they were after drawings, and I had a library of about 400,000 drawings. And when they submitted their requirements to me, I'd go and ferret them out and scurry back and give them the information they needed. They'd go off and do important things. Well, because the area I worked in was considered a secure area, it was buttoned down tight at night. So the cleaning crews would come through during the daytime. Now, I, I got used to scurrying around the engineers. Well, the cleaning crews got used to scurrying around underneath me. Um, they would come in, and I, their eyes were bolted to the floor. They would make a beeline for the trash can, grab it like it was some kind of rabid creature, dust a few things, and race out of there. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know the routine, right? Um, well, after a few weeks of working in this area, I noticed there's one particular lady who was a regular now coming to clean my particular area. And, of course, she'd come in true to form in her uniform, scurrying in, do her stuff, scurry back out. And I felt the Lord nudge me to say, hi. <laughs> so I did. I said, hi. And at first, she thought I must be talking to somebody else. And the first day, no response. She just went on her way. And uh, that happened a couple of days, and I actually had to resort to hanging my head over the edge of my desk, getting between her and the garbage can. Hi. <laughs> and she kind of stepped back a bit. She was shocked that this human's interacting with me. What's going on here? And she managed a week. Hi. Grabbed the trash and ran out. Well, this went on for, you know, a few months. Um, and I should interject here that just by way of contrast, some things the Lord was teaching me, I had made it a real project of trying to talk about the Lord to a few friends I'd made at the office during this time. And we'd go out to lunch and, you know, they'd tell me about They'd really bought into the gospel of, well, I know the last five wives didn't work out, but this one, she's pretty. And when we get that boat in the water, life's going to be great. You know, the conversation never really went anywhere when I talked to them about the Lord. But anyway, back to saying hi. Um, so after several months of this, and we got to the point where actually we might have even strayed into saying, like, it's cold out. Yeah, it's cold. And I think I even asked her how her day was going. But that was about it. Well, uh, one day, a different gal came into my area. And... I figured she would just absorb the behaviors of her line of work and do the scurrying, and we'd have to go through this routine again. But she came right in front of my desk and planted her feet. And I was 
sorting through a bunch of drawings, so I noticed feet, and I looked up, and there was a cleaning person in uniform making direct eye contact, which was unusual. And so I, I did what the Lord was teaching me. Hi. <laughs> I'll never forget what she said. Uh, she said, you know the gal who usually cleans your area? Yeah. She tried to commit suicide last night. She's at Alaska Psychiatric Institute. She asked me if I would come and ask you to visit her because she says she knows that you are a real Christian. I was shocked. I don't know what the Lord did in the background through my saying hi. But of course that evening, I, I went and visited her. And I don't really remember a whole lot of our conversation. I do remember we prayed together and she gave herself to our Lord. And knowing how fragile she was walking in there, I asked her, well, do you feel any different? And she looked up at me with these big warm eyes and said, yeah, it's like getting a big hug on the inside. I got to watch this person go into API suicidal and walk back out with hope, not alone anymore, a child of our eternal Lord. What a privilege. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. The scripture is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. If you've been with us the last two weeks, I think you're getting the picture that that this uh, I believe the scriptures don't give us a how to manual on marriage, what they do or, or singleness. They give us a new vision for what marriage is in Christ or what singleness can be in Christ. That's really it. So now as, as this series goes on, you're going to find it'll get more practical. But um, my my main thing is to, is to get that vision of what marriage is in your mind. And when you have that, you can work things out in a way that makes sense. Um, 
there's in Paul's in Paul's letters, uh, particularly first Corinthians and in chapter two there. And then we find it here in chapter two of, of Ephesians and chapter five is a, a contrast of the way that the world looks and thinks about things and the way that God looks and thinks about things. And so uh, there's a spirit of there's the Holy Spirit of God. And then there's the spirit of the age or the spirit of the world. The world in its ways is what Paul says in in chapter two. And in chapter five, here he talks about the darkness uh, of of the, the present age versus the light that comes through the spirit. So. In this contrast, what is the spirit of the age in which we live? And how does the spirit of this age inform our views on relationships, particularly on the marriage relationship? By spirit of the age, I mean the way we think about things, the pattern, the logic that we use to justify our actions, um, the, the what is normal, the, the sense of what is normal in this world. And, and what is normal in this world is not normal with God. And we're going to see that as we look into um, this topic of, of marriage again today and uh, really about relationships in general. But I'm going to read something to you here that I believe picks up on the spirit of the age in which we live. Now, I have to, I'm going to, I I eavesdrop, you know, I'm I'm guilty. But this was, I want to, and so I want to, this was in a particular locker room. So men or women, you're going to get an insight into what men, some men anyway, talk about in men's locker rooms. If you don't want to do that, you you can put your hands over your ears or whatever. But um, I know you're curious now, <laughs> but uh, I, I say this. I don't want to mock the person. Um, there's a real sadness in my heart for what I heard. That's the first thing I want to say. So I'm not trying to. I'm just using it as an illustration of the age in which we live and the spirit of the age in which we live. And I think it's fairly typical. In fact, it was alluded to you, uh, Kenan, in, in the lunch that, that you mentioned there with your worker, your fellow workers. But um, this is also a conversation that I heard. It, it was meant to be overheard. It was the loudest conversation between two men I've heard in a long time. It, it's like I, they wanted everybody in that locker room to know how they felt about uh, relationships. So I don't feel too guilty in sharing it. In fact, they were in the next. I couldn't even see them. They were. In the, I could hear them over, and uh, I started writing things down. This is good stuff. <laughs> I'm going to use this. Couldn't make this stuff up. All right, so two guys. Um, very briefly, the first one says, "This is it's just crazy." They're talking about about their their uh, these are weather worn men who'd been who, they'd been through the battles. That's kind of that you know. There's a little bit of that ethos that went with this. And one of them says, "It's crazy." I lived with a woman for seven years, and then before that, I lived with another woman. For seven years. And then before that, I was married for 16 years. And then the last two years, I've just been by myself. And he says, it's kind of like, I kind of like it by myself. There's no one telling me what to do. The last woman I dated, and that was in these two years that he's been, the last woman I dated, she had three kids and she was so bossy. There's a reason that she's been divorced. I'm not trying to mark. That's what came out. And then he said, I don't know if I'm going to go there again, but if I do, I'm going to be very, very careful. And then the other guy said back to him, yeah, women can be very, very attractive on the outside, but you really don't know what you're getting until you spend a lot of time with them. 
the conversation went on, and, and it was in that vein. But that I want to say that is the spirit of the age in which we live. It captures a lot of the, the spirit. So um, you're, you, there's a self-orientation, and the marriage or relationship, I should say, between a man and a woman is is perceived in the value that you get out of it, kind of a market value approach to relationships. And if you don't get the value out of it, you just move on to the next person. Um, after all, in the marketplace, diversification is always recommended in investing. You don't want to get put all your eggs in one basket for too long. And there's a, free, there's a fear, though. Underneath the, the voice here is a fear of commitment that has come out of maybe getting burned. But there's really a fear that's part of the spirit of the age that we live in in terms of relationships. We're going to talk about this next week, but particularly the week after when we talk about the deadliest catch. But there's a fear of the deadliest catch, and it keeps us from the kind of commitment that can uh, be really a beautiful thing in our lives. And then uh, you have the desire for freedom to keep your options open. That's, part of, that's very much a part of the postmodern culture. But beneath all of that, there's... Uh, there's a movement there from, if you look, listen to it, it's from marriage where he made a vow to cohabitation where there was an attempt to, at relationship to dating and now to aloneness, to commiserating with another man in the locker room. <laughs> Underneath all of that to me is a sad and lost soul. Okay? That's my read on it. In spite of all the, the sort of uh, tough guy language. Well, the spirit of this age is uh, something that's very real. And, and Paul gives us the spirit of, of Christ in contrast. And in that spirit, we have the hope for relationships. God has spoken, and in his speech, we find uh, hope. And it is for single people. It is for married people. My, my hope is this morning. We're talking about a piece of paper. Obviously, that means a marriage certificate. And... If you're a single person who thinks, and most single people, even if they are kind of good with their singleness, they think, well, one day maybe, you know, I might get married. Who knows? Or for marriage people to recalibrate the value of that, if that piece of paper is what we're after this morning. Before we go there, I want to remind you that two weeks ago, we looked at, in, out of the same passage, we looked at how selfishness is the problem in marriage. I don't, it, it just is the problem. And the Spirit of God is asking, or Paul asks us to be filled instead with the Spirit of God. And rather than the Spirit of ourselves, which gets us in trouble in relationships, we're to be filled with the Spirit of God. And one of the ways we do that, and you talk about speaking against the Spirit of the age, is to submit to one another. We're gonna, we'll come to that one, but to submit to one another if there's anything that I could say that is against the spirit of the age we live in, it would be that. If I were to have gone up to that guy in the locker room, hey, just submit yourself to, oh, no, <laughs> tried that, didn't work. But that's what God is calling us to do, is to submit to one another. And then last week we looked at how marriage and singleness, neither one of them are ultimate, they are uh, penultimate or um, less than ultimate, and they point towards the ultimate, which is uh, the union of God with his people, which we find in the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Okay, so today we're going to, we're going to, um, there's, there's a verse here we're going to really focus on, verse 31, and this is not the first time, this is the, this verse is the substructure upon all of which Paul is saying, and, and Christ, when he speaks on marriage, does the same thing. Uh, 
Let me read that for you. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And I'm going to use the, the traditional language, which is leave and what? Leave and cleave. So let's look at that word cleave, because that is the key word here. It's, uh, it's a word that has covenantal overtones. Covenant, uh, we're going to, uh, up on the screen here, I've got a definition of covenant. But before I go there, the word cleave means to stick to, to adhere. You got it? That's, it's a very much a, it, it, it's a relational word that implies a permanent and exclusive relationship. And it, it, the word covenant is used both vertically and horizontally. So we find that our, we don't have a relationship with God unless it's a covenant relationship with God. And the marriage relationship, this is the vision of marriage that all of us have got to get if we're going to be biblical in our view of marriage, is a, um, a covenantal view, a cleaving view, a permanent exclusive relationship with God, a permanent exclusive relationship with a member of the other gender, okay? So here's, here's the four parts to a covenant relationship. Introduce the two parties. And by the way, in, when I perform a wedding, right here, sometimes, uh, that's what you do. You introduce, the, it's not like they don't know each other, but you just kind of make things clear, all right? So you introduce two parties. You state the conditions and stipulations of the relationship. This is what it means to enter in. The third thing is you list the consequences of unfaithfulness, uh, or of faithfulness, but you know, in the in the wedding ceremony, you have let no one uh, tear apart which God what God has brought together, and and then it's very serious. And then you make the vows, and you confirm that in a ritual or ceremony ceremonial way, which involves both a legal aspect and in the end, you get a piece of paper. That's what we're you get a piece of paper. Now the value of that paper. All of that, you know, people think, well, you know, I love this person. This is the spirit of the age in which we live. And they say, wait a minute, just a minute. Do I need a piece of paper that tells me that I love this person? I mean, that seems, that devalues, this is, the, this is what I hear. That devalues the love that I feel for this person. Why do we need a piece of paper? Why do we have to take something that is all about love and is spontaneous and free and flowing and put it into a legal format? I mean, come on, what's the what's going on here? That's that is the pushback from the age in which we live. And it's why we have uh, cohabitation being uh, sought out as a means for relationship as opposed to marriage, even though cohabitation, uh, the, the rates of divorce for those who cohabit before they get married are higher than those who do not. But all the surveys have shown that. But people still like the logic. Can you remember? The spirit of the age contains its own logic. Um, so what is it about uh, this uh, pushback? Uh, there, there's, there's something that we need to um, look at here. And by the way, just a checkpoint for all of you, and, and just in your insights, just tell me the truth here. But if I were to, to say to you, you know, this afternoon when you go home, or this late, later on, when you go home, and you have a choice to decide between something that you really, really love to do, that you have a desire for, and it's fun, versus something that you feel duty-bound and obligatory towards, but maybe feels like the right thing, which is the way, I mean, where do you want to go in your heart of hearts? 
There is there is some of that going on here. Now, come on, be honest. Don't don't. I mean, I mean, you know, apples to apples. We're going to we're going to probably choose. I mean, if we have an excuse to be a two year old, we'll be we'll revert. You know, I will. Give me. I mean, I, I, I'm going home today to watch a football game. It's my duty. It's my obligation. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. You know, anyway. Here's the crux of the matter. Let's get let's get that up here. Our culture has two definitions of what is on freedom or one for freedom, one for love. And the Bible uh, comes back on each of those. And this is really this is really what it's about. Here's our, here's the spirit of the age. Freedom is found in the unhindered pursuit of your happiness. Freedom is found in the in in the unhindered pursuit of your happiness. Um, you can almost hear that in our uh, uh, Declaration of Independence. What does the Bible say? Freedom is found. This is not working. Uh, can I get some help from somebody somewhere? There we go. The biblical view is that freedom is found in obeying God, and that leads to happiness. That we find freedom in obedience to God. Very different. Those are two very different ways of approaching the word freedom. If you breathe in the spirit of this age, you're going to come to a very different place than if you breathe in the spirit of God on this. And what about love? Okay, I didn't want to go all the way back. Oh, there it is. Love is defined primarily as how I feel towards someone. This is the definition that we work with. You don't have to, I don't think I have to convince you. What does the Bible say? Love is, love is. Love is click, click, click. It ain't happening for me. There it is. Biblical view is that love is primarily about how you act toward someone. Okay? Very different. How you feel about someone and how you act about someone. And so if, if a couple decides to get married, what it becomes, the marriage ceremony becomes, and this is going to sound normal to you, and I'm going to just challenge the socks off of it here in a minute, it becomes a celebration. We're all gathered here to celebrate the love that this man and this woman have found for each other. That is so much against God's definition of love. Now, it's in, it includes that, and we'll talk. But if it, if it only includes that, you're going to end up in, in a very different place than you want. So here's here's the deal. What love is 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 an action and, and what, it, what a vow is, let's go there, what, an, what a vow is, which is what that piece of paper is about, a vow is a commitment on your part to act in certain ways in the future. The vow has nothing to say about feelings. How could you, because what a vow is, is what, what's the last line on the vow? Until when? Until death do us part, that's, and hopefully that's a really, really long time, how can you commit to feeling something 30 years from now? And what a stupid thing. I can't commit to how I'm going to feel tomorrow. Can I? I mean, what are feelings? They just are. This is the definition our culture uses. They just are. I felt really, really cold this week. And, and, you know, I'm getting warmer, but 
Uh, I mean, I, I don't choose my feelings. They choose me. How can I possibly choose? So a vow is it's an appointment with yourself in the future towards certain actions. All right. Do you know that when I was a kid, I loved this is the rub. I loved the New York Yankees when I was a kid for you baseball fans. Do you know that today I hate them? I love the Dallas Cowboys. I hate them. I didn't know they were going to get these owners that just jerk their fans around. That's how I feel. You may, I just defended some fans here from those teams. I don't care. I don't care. Go get a new owner and I might, you know, come back. But I didn't make vows to them. But I tell you what, I love them. And I, and I would have said at the time, I'm always going to be a Yankees fan. Or I'm always going to be a Cowboys fan. I love these. I mean, I just, you know, I love sports growing up. But now, now I don't. What, what, life changes, doesn't it? Uh, let me get you a, a quote for C.S. Lewis. People get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. A result, when they find out that they are not, they think this proves that they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old. Okay, that's, that's the deal. Here's, here's an, another one from Lewis Smeads. When I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense of what I was getting into with her. Can we, I mean, ain't it the truth? How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? Yeah, yeah, okay, we can turn it around. How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of those men has been me. That's the way it works. So the problem with interpreting vows as, I mean, when, when two people are in front of each other and they're just gushing feelings, I mean, I'm trying to do everything I can. No, it's not about feelings. I know you, feelings are good, not bad. We don't want to play one against the other, but those feelings need to be in the context of something bigger than the feelings, which is a commitment to actions towards each other down the road. Now, when you, when you make the vow, there's a couple of things that happen. One is, and I know this, I hate to use this phrase because... Whenever I used it with my kids, they'd say, oh, gee, here it comes again. But it builds character, you know, puts hair on your chest or whatever. But um, here's what here's what character or what what a vow does. It, It when you have to do things that you don't feel like doing over a long period of time, guess it does build character. And. I know that it's not it's just not it's a tough sell. I know it's a tough sell, but. It is absolutely the truth. And if you look at your life, you'll see that. And that your, your, your actions become a tutor. They train your feelings. Your feelings can be trained. You can train your feelings with your actions, but you can't, you can't do it the other way around. You can't feel your way into actions. You can act your way into feelings. And so when I, when I change a diaper, I'm glad those days are over, or I do dishes, those days are still here, when I do that as an act of love that I don't want to do, in the midst of doing that, I feel more, I become, it changes me, it changes my heart, my, I become more, I feel like loving now. Now that I'm doing something that's loving, I feel like loving. Now if I wait till I feel like loving, the dishes are going to pile up until, until Patty does them, you know? That's the way it works. So it builds character. 
But it also builds identity. So I'm going to use my son, my oldest son here. What vows do is they build identity. He made, there's four vows that define my son's life. This is just from me thinking about it. Uh, this isn't his, I'm reflecting on what I've seen in his life. And I've been at every one of his vows. And without these vows, he is nowhere near the person that he has become. Okay? But here's the first vow. When he was, uh, I think he was 10 or 11 years old, he was baptized. He made a vow to make Jesus Christ the Lord of his life in baptism. And if you've been baptized, that's the vow that you have made. That's, that's, that's a serious there is no other vow that's ever going to top that one. I mean, it's, there, there's nothing. I mean, marriage will be second place by far. But when you say, Jesus, you're the master. What you say, I do. I don't have opinions that matter nearly as much as what you have for me. So I, I'm, I'm, you're my, I'm yours, you're mine. That's what he made that vow. And guess what? He has a piece of paper that says he did. And there were witnesses there. It was a public ceremony. And that vow informs his life. It shaped his life. Second vow he made was as an Eagle Scout. And there's, if you've been to an Eagle Scout ceremony, you know that there's quite a bit that goes into that. And it's a lot of it's about the vows that you're making. And there's a piece of paper that says he's an Eagle Scout. It was done in a public place. It was done at a church. And then the third, uh, the third one... The third vow that he made was to serve the United States Air Force, to serve his country. And I was there, Patty and I were there, when he made that vow in, in front of a lot of witnesses. And that exclusively, permanently, you serve one country. You know, I'm not, you know, it's, it's exclu- it narrows your options down. So that's, that's, all these vows, they narrow your options down. You see, spirit of the age is keep the options open. Hey, I can serve any country. I can marry any woman. I can, yeah, I want to keep, I don't want to narrow it down. I'll lose my options. Yeah, well, each one of these vows just narrows, 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 but it deepens, 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 and his identity is being shaped. And so the fourth vow is that he married Jenny. And, oh man, it's, it's beautiful. And now we have a grandson. Well, that's just a side benefit for us. But, but to watch their life together, and to see how he is living out his vows, the commit- that's who he is. A vowless person has no identity. Where's the wind blowing today? I'll go with the wind. You'll go, the spirit of the age. Where's the spirit of the age going? These are identity. That's, that's what it means to be lost. You have no identity. Where's the real you from which you speak? We are vow that's we're, we're intended to make vows god has put this it's really really important for our identity it's who we are piece of paper it's part of it part of each one of those well uh why is the vow so important to marriage let's go there and um here's it's the answer is given in genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says for this reason, a man shall leave and cleave. The two shall become one flesh. And then the next verse, verse 25, says, because well, or they were naked and they felt no shame. And I, I said two weeks ago, naked means what? It means totally, not just physically naked. That's way too small. We're talking um, spiritually, physically 
financially, socially, nothing held back from naked. Now, if you're going to become that, that's, that's what deepens. That's what makes the bond really, really deep and rich, okay, between two people. If you're going to do that, you're going to need to have a context for that. Um, or you're going to get, you know, the, the thing is, it's kind of, I know I'm trying to, I make, I'm trying to make a sales point here, and there's, I can feel some pushback even in this room on this one. But if you're going to go deep with someone, and I mean really, really deep, nothing held back deep, no prenuptial agreements on any, on any of that stuff. I mean, it's total, total commitment. Then you're going to need a, a container for that to happen where it's safe because you're making yourself flat out vulnerable in every way to that person. What is that container going to look like that's going to make that feel safe? That's, that's the issue. And what people do, instead of going for this container, I'll talk about it here in just a sec, is that they'll just, they just won't go as deep. And, oh, how sad. The two don't become one. I mean, that's, that's selling yourself short. Okay, here's, there's two Greek words, and you may have heard these before. The first one, these are words for love. And we find that word eros, um, it's, uh, we find it celebrated in the uh, Song of Solomon, which I'll talk about in just a sec. But it, these, are, these are my, you know, the words that go with that. Valentine's Day should be on there. Romance, passion, sensual, erotic, red hot. So right now my wife is thinking about me as a word association. <laughs> okay, that's... That's the first one. And then this word agape. And if you want a, a good definition there, go to 1 Corinthians 13. Patient, not proud, no scorekeeping, forgiving, faithful. Character words, aren't they? And what God, I believe, is saying to us is that agape is, and agape includes that piece of paper, it is the context for eros. See, he's not against eros. If you go to the Song of Solomon, you know, religious people are embarrassed by that book. It's got body parts and seductivity and slobber and, I don't know, genitals, body I mean, It's all there. Some of you are going to turn into Bible readers here real quick. <laughs> it's, it's, it's celebrated. But if you notice there, it's in the context of a covenant relationship that's safe, where you can feel that vulnerable to another person and they to you because you have made a commitment and there's a piece of paper somewhere that says on this particular day, we made a public commitment to each other. Oh, safety. Feels good when you look at it that way. Yeah. That's, that's, now the spirit of the age wants it both ways, this age that we live in. If I can just give a little critique before we close. Because I know you would, not, you would not find anyone, very few people in this world who would be against character building or identity. You would, we want character for our children and our grandchildren. And we want it, I mean, teachers want it for their kids in the classroom. We all want character, right? 
But what we do is we put a, we put, we say that we give lip service to it. But in reality, the spirit of this age is going against that in a huge way and towards that definition of freedom and love that we had up there earlier. Those definitions of freedom and love do not, do not work with character. That's the age we live in. And C.S. Lewis, he has great imagery. He said, we bid the gelding be fruitful and we castrate it. Translated, we have a horse that's a stud and we want him to reproduce, but we cut off his testicles. Come on, folks. What, what, What are you about? I mean, this is where this is where we are. You can't have it both ways. You can have the erotic love and free expression and celebration within the context of character. It's safe. Oh, it's a safe place. It's beautiful. But you can't have it both ways. Okay, let's go to Christ. Now, in this passage in Ephesians five, you'll notice, and we're gonna, we're just going to keep coming back to it, coming back to it, that that Christ is mentioned in there over and over again. So the parallel between the man and the wife is found in Christ and, and his people. And so you find in there, for example, it, that, Christ, that, that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? And aren't you glad that Jesus' definition of love was not, when he looked down from the cross, he did not say, I find you so attractive, that, you know, I feel I just had such a feeling for you because that doesn't last. And what you find instead there is a covenantal love, a character based love that comes out of his character and identity that wants to stick, adhere, cleave to you. And he is saying, I love you, not with gushy feelings, but with an action that reverberates down through eternity. It's a covenantal love sealed. There's a ceremony that we we call it the Lord's Supper. We're not going to do it today, but it's sealed in his blood. This new covenant. It's a it's a big deal. And he when someone says, I love you, what is it that they long to hear more than anything else back from that person? Come on. I love you, too. That's the spiritual response that Jesus, that is the heart response that Jesus is looking for. A covenant response, not a feeling response that, that lasts until, you know, three o'clock today or whatever. A, a commitment response from the heart, the whole of you, not just your emotions, your mind, your body, everything about you saying, I love you too, Jesus. Husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He gave himself for you. And now he wants you to give yourself to him. Let's pray. Lord, um, this picture of what marriage is, is um, beautiful and challenging and breathtaking and terrifying. Jesus, you speak to us through your spirit, not the spirit of this age, of a true love and a true freedom. And when you say, I love you, I pray that we can hear it the way you mean it. And I pray now that 
as we have a chance to say, I love you too, I pray that we can mean it. Lord, you have promised to commit yourself, to give yourself, to cleave to us. May we be open to your embrace and may we embrace you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.